tweeted this morning, so I've, I've gained seven pounds since I got a Fitbit for Christmas. This thing clearly does not work. And uh, somebody wrote back and said, you have to shake it. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight in your factories, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 87 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Josh Sutter. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. James Edward Gray. I'll be your cyborg panelist for this episode. Good Brady. Happy New Year, everybody. Or, well, I guess last week was when you listened to... Anyway, happy January. Hi. Avdi Grimm. Hello from sunny Arrakis. And if I sound a little funny this week, it's because I'm presently coating myself in sand trout in order to assume an immortal pre-worm form. <laughs> awesome. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I've been working hard on railsrampup.com, so go check it out. Um, Katrina isn't here this week. She's off chasing reindeer in Norway. And uh, we've got a special guest, and that's Sandy Metz. Hi. So I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anybody that we uh, have Sandy here, since she wrote the book club book, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby. I'm surprised Uh, she agreed to come. (laughs) After all the hype in the fall, how could I resist? Yeah. Wait, what uh, book? <laughs> actually, I'm pretty sure if you listen to our episodes over the past several months, almost every time I've had to say the name of the book, I think I've gotten it wrong, including in last week's episode. So, yeah. <laughs> Just say yeah. Cooter. Yeah, well, Cooter. the problem is I can never remember like what the P stands for. I think I've called it pragmatic, practicing... Uh, whatever, and then I can never remember if it's in Ruby or with Ruby. You know, I I can't remember that part myself. <laughs> you know, I, so, I keep I keep mixing it up with the Goose book, and so I'm like, practical object oriented software guided by what name? No, <laughs> I, I was like practicing this morning so I could say it right. <laughs> I I I just pretend that I'm David Brady and call it Pooper. Yeah, really. Whoever put that on Twitter, the person who said practical oriented programming, and then someone said Pooter, really? (laughs) I have a I have a friend who's five years old who refers to his dad's uh, laptop as a Pooter, (laughs) and so that's how I remember. Yeah. So real quick, I know most of us have met you at various conferences and things, Sandy. But for our listener who may not have had the pleasure, can you just introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. I'm Sandy Metz. I'm a woman of a certain age, so that means I've been writing software for longer than most of you have been alive. Um, I don't work for a startup. I don't work for a consulting company. I actually sit at a desk and write code for a living, and I've been doing that for 35 years or so. Uh, The first significant number of those years were long enough ago that it was COBOL. And then I fell into Smalltalk, so I wrote Smalltalk apps for 12 or 13 years I had a little brief segue into Java and then was rescued by Ruby in the mid-2000s. And so, um, and and then I got caught 
at a conference, I got overheard in a hallway rant, and some people started trying to get me to write a book, which took a while, and then I wrote a book. So the reason I'm here today is because I've been in a cave all my life writing code, but some folks made me come out of that cave a little bit, and now I have to talk to some, well, you guys aren't strangers, fortunately, but I have to I have to go to conferences and talk and, you know, get out, which so, is a, so a little bit hard. Was yeah. it the convincing you to write a book that took a while or the writing of the book that took a while? Uh, both. <laughs> it, it, was, it was about, it took about three years for me to agree to write it, and then it took two <laughs> years overall to actually get it written. So it was a, a long, extremely long and painful process. Nice. Yes. And everyone right. who's ever everyone who's ever written a book knows what that's like. I, I can recommend it to you all. <laughs> <laughs> we have some business to take care of, and then we jump back in on this. Um, the first thing that I want to announce real quick is that uh, we have the best episode survey that you can get to at rubyrogues.com slash survey. Um, so just go in there and let us know which survey was your favorite. And then James also has an announcement for us. Yeah, so it's time for another book, um, and we held the vote on Parlay, gave uh, several options, and the one that rose to the top of the pack is Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture by Martin Fowler, and I actually got that name right because I looked at the front of the book <laughs> when I said it, so uh, that's the book we'll be reading next. It's pretty thick, um, but in the intro, he says really that the first part's the part you read, and then the, the back half's kind of a reference if you want to thumb around, or if you want to read that too, great. Um, we'll probably give a couple of months and uh, discuss it probably early March. So pick that one up and get started. Is, is this where we actually find out what active record really means? Yes, and more. Yeah, it, you'll be surprised when you crack it open and read through. This book's 10 years old. And when you crack it open and read through just the pattern names, you'll be like, oh, my God, this is the Rails book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so dated is what you mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, so be before we get into talking about the, the contents of the book, um, Sandy, I wanted to ask you about the you – know, we were talking a little bit about the writing process and how excruciating it was for you. I I've seen you speak at a couple conferences now and watched a couple of your videos, and – uh, you know, to our listeners, if you haven't watched, a, you know, if you haven't gotten to see Sandy speak in person uh, or haven't watched one of her videos, go watch her videos because she's a really amazing speaker in that, like, everything she says is really carefully thought out. And it's, you know, she's definitely not up there riffing uh, <laughs> extemporaneously like some of us do on stage. <laughs> so, but Sandy, I wanted to ask you about the the interplay, the interaction of the book writing process and the speaking process, because I assume that there was some period of time when you were talking about this material and you were still writing the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, first, first I would, well, the first thing I would say was that talks are equally painful. Talks take a long time to put together. Yeah. Amen. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're yep. like uh, any talk that if you've seen a talk online that I gave, I, I would tell you that the average prep time for me for a talk is, every day for up to two hours for about three months. Now, I know that that probably marks me as someone who's painfully incredibly slow. Like, clearly people give good talks who don't have that much, don't have to put that much effort into them. Um, but so the talks are absolutely crafted. Like, a lot of people say, oh, don't write down everything you're going to say. I, I can promise you that when I give a talk, every word is scripted and every slide change is marked in the script. And, and so that 
when I get into trouble in my talks is when I wander. If I start like making making stuff up, I I get off track. And so the so the talks. It was very interesting while I was writing the book and making talks up out of book content, how different the mediums were. Like, I'm, it, it's so much easier for me to explain things if I can draw a lot of pictures. And in the book, you can't really, like, put a slide up and then make a tiny little change on the slide and then make another little change on the slide and then make another little change on the slide because people, people just feel cheated, right? When they're reading a book, if you have 10 pages of the same diagram with slight differences in it. And, and so for me, that was the huge benefit of giving talks that I could draw a lot of pictures that had very tiny differences in them. Where in the book, every time I wanted to explain the same concept, I had to just use words. And that made it particularly hard to do the writing. So, you know, that's, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, in one of my notes here that I wrote down while reading the book was I really loved the perfect ratio of prose to code it's like it's like you show me some code and then you, you explain it and so many books just go so wrong in one direction or the other like i was reading a book just the other day that's just code 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 and i mean they show you like a two-page script they wrote then they go through and they there'll be like a line of prose explaining what one particular method is which is then reprinted and i mean I just got so beaten over the head by the code. And then there's other books where they just babble, 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 you know, and then blabble, blabble, blabble. some code. And, and but I, I thought in your book in particular, the pacing between the prose and the code was just so perfect. It was like a conversation. It was really great. Uh, I want to jump in on that really quickly just because uh, there are two things I want to add to what James said. The first is, is that, None of the code samples I read on my Kindle, none of the code samples was more than a page and a half long on my Kindle. And that, that paid off in two ways. One was that I'm not flipping through, you know, trying to keep a large application in my head. Um, you know, it's just a small application, you know, and that's the second thing is all of your code examples were things that I could, I could reasonably keep in my head while you're explaining why they do or don't work or what the trade-offs are between that between this approach and that approach. And, and it really, really is nice. Um, I've read other books. Um, I, I, I'm not going to pick on any, but I've read a few where you, you start reading and you get into the, that place where you're going through like 10 or 12 lines of code. And it's just like, okay, just give me a repository at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- what we had there was just something that, you know, I could just, I, it was bite-sized and it was really, really nice. So, first of all, let me say, it is so nice to hear praise. <laughs> and I, oh, I don't... Get used I won't, to it. Well, I won't go overboard. I, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, like are I wrote... Are we friends yet, Sandy? What's that? Are we say friends again? yet, Sandy? I no, can we say are more friends. Nice I love you all. Well, I, I mean, I wrote it in a vacuum, and I couldn't... And I didn't have much feedback while I was writing it, uh, which was a bad idea. I mean, it's, a, it's my own fault, right, that that happened. And so I were, I had a vision of the reader in mind and I tried very, very, very hard to communicate with that reader. And it's, I, I can't tell you like for all the people who might be listening to this, who think they might write a book and they're immediately put off by all this talk of pain. I'm, I mean, the thing that's really great about it is feeling like that effort is paying off. And so it, it makes everything worthwhile, right? In the end to have it, to feel as if it is useful. Anyway, so, so the, so the, you know, the hardest thing about writing anything is the examples. And I think everything that you guys are saying goes right back to that, like picking, picking good examples, 
carries a book, right? If the examples are bad, you hate them. If the examples are engaging in the right length and they teach you the right things, then they keep your attention. And so I was lucky in that, uh, you know, my love of bicycles gave me a domain that interested me that I thought might interest the readers. On top of that, though, like I, there were two things that I did that I, that I really, really cared about. One was that I wanted color syntax highlighting. And the other is I wanted it to be easily easy to read on e-readers. And those two things aren't common, really, in the especially in the big iron publishing world of Addison Wesley. But I put a lot of effort into uh, making sure the code would look good, like on your Kindle, and be readable on your Kindle, and be in a chunk size bite on your Kindle. And it, it turns out that's really paying off, right? Lots of people want to read it on those mm-hmm. devices, so it makes it reachable. It, it means you can carry your, you know, your Nook or your Kindle around with you and read it. You know, in terms of how the ratio of code versus prose, I just, I feel like I just got that wrong over and over and over again. And then I obsessively edited until, like, like I wrote a lot of things that didn't make sense even to me, right? Like I would write them. I would, I would write stuff. I mean, it's that classic thing where you try to explain stuff. Like we've forgotten what it's like to be a novice. And I would write code examples and I would have the transitions between example A and, you know, example one and example two. And then I would realize I left like 14 steps out. And, and that the part that the part that the novice reader or, or even the intermediate reader needed to hear, I like skipped it. I just like totally skipped it. I left everything out that would allow you as someone who didn't know these techniques to go reproduce them yourself. And so I think the size of the examples the, the transitional steps, like more and more transitional steps got introduced as the book went on because I was a miserable failure at taking the right size step between one example and the next, but, but really struggling with the prose and trying to figure out like how to explain all the intermediate steps drove the addition of additional code transition examples. That, Sandy, one of the things that um, I, I find when I talk to a lot of software developers who write is that we experience some parallelism between the process for writing software and the process for writing prose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so when I, when I wrote a book, which nobody ever bought because they canceled OpenDoc before it hit the shelves, um, the, but we, we took on the, the, so, the writing process as kind of a software development process and we had the same sort of cycle. Did, did you did you do anything like that where you had like test driven development of your prose? I, I didn't. I mean, I would say that I I did a, a thing that's probably similar, but for me, I thought of it as writing a story. Like the book is a story. It's a mm-hmm. story where there's a bunch of story arcs, and they curve around and curve around and come back and curve. It's it's like a spiral that keeps getting bigger with every chapter, where. Uh, like, like I wanted, so I had that in mind, right? I sort of had a beginning and a middle and an end and every chapter has a beginning and a middle and the end. And I had a theory, I don't know, like I wanted it. uh, Okay. So early on in the writing, I got some feedback from my editors that it was a little too informal. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah. And and it probably was, I mean, I, I, you know, formalized it up a little bit, but still, I think it's substantially less formal than most books like this. It is, absolutely. And, and so I had to make a decision early on about whether I was going to, like, it's in this, you know, it's in the, um, whatever it is, the Professional Ruby series. And the, a lot of books in that series are pretty academic and formal. 
And so for me, I had to decide whether I was going to try to find a voice, use my voice, or whether I was going to try to be that voice, whatever that voice was that they wanted. And in the end, like the writing was so hard that I was just, okay, here, I, I need to edit my language. I was just like, oh, heck, I'm just going to say what I want to say. And I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. And if they hate it, well, they can just not publish it. So let's be clear. Sandy is not a professional, despite the series title. No, I'm just, uh, <laughs> no I, I think you're right. And that really comes across like um, I, I have tons of examples written down from uh, when I was reading it. Like, for example, in the SRP example, um, you showed that off so awesome in that you just start off this harmless little class. It's fine. And then you're like, and then this request comes in and you do this. And I'm like, yep, I do that. And then this request comes in and you do this. And I'm like, yep, I do that. And then you're like, and by now you've blown SRP, <laughs> you know? And it's like, wait, did we? Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> and it's such a great conversation that just guides you through. There's another one I've written down where you mentioned something about using actual, uh, HTTR reader methods to, uh, for the variables. And, um, and you had just been talking about public interface and I'm like, but wait, those add to the public interface. And I, I had that question. And then in the very next paragraph, you're like, and of course those add to the public interface. So it was like, it was really like a conversation. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. Yeah. The, so, 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 okay. We're talking about the book now. Yeah. The, 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 I want to, I want to talk a little bit about just the flow of the book since we're, since we're getting into that. And I, the, I, I, I gotta say that the, the, there's a lot of material in this book. So, so if, if people are listening along at home or in your car or mowing your lawn or whatever you do, when you listen to us, hi, um, the, the flow of the book, I think is, um, I mean, this is not just a, a book for people who know object-oriented programming and want to get better at their software development with it. It's actually a really good teaching text for object-oriented programming because it's so practical and hands-on with the things yes. that really matter about object-oriented programming. And the, you know, like James said, the the conversational flow in it I think is really great. But the but the way that you talk through object-oriented design and then show the practical implications of, oh, well, this is a public interface. Therefore, here's how I have to deal with, uh, you know, how I'm arranging the code that uses that. Or why would I want to you know, talk to you know, my own accessor method instead of talking to the instance variable directly? What does that do for me? Mm -hmm. And, and what, how, you know, what's the effect of encapsulation and, uh, you know, you know, polymorphism, let's, let's deal with this. So, so I love that everything was really concrete, that you talk about the abstraction and then you show concretely what that means for your code. So sure. that I, the, the, the real power there for me was just that a lot of these concepts were things that we about on the show or I've talked to other people and they've explained to me and some of them I do really well and some of them I don't but the thing that really got to me was just that by the time I was done it's exactly what Josh said I mean I had this okay this is exactly where I want you to do this and why and you know my, my code's going to be better for it simply because even though I understood the concept I didn't completely understand how to apply it and that there was a lot of that in there that really really paid off for me I, I mean it's like, I feel like we suck at explaining things and that we have failed the people, especially the people who are coming up in Ruby. Like, like, what does it mean to do design? So now we're going to talk about big issues, right? Like, like, what does it mean to do design? Well, 
Like, what are what is, what is all this stuff? And, and like, I know some of that stuff just because I came out of the small talk world and I've, I haven't read many of the books, but I've read some of them. But I've, I've been writing code a long time and maintaining code a long time. And the, the stuff that's in the air that helps me, like, in some ways, I'm the universal translator, right? Like, I finally get it and then I can explain it. And what I find is I've spent, I spent a lot of time drawing pictures on whiteboards and telling people how to write object-oriented code. And it's really unfortunate to me that we have this sort of divide in our community between there's this academic world of stuff that we don't really understand and we can't read the books and they don't make any sense. And there's all these words, right, that don't really help us write code. And then there's us where we sit down every day and we try to produce product, get features out the door. And there's this huge amount of knowledge that is incredibly helpful. But it's, it's like we don't have a good way to talk about it so that we can understand it and make use of it. Yeah. And, and my goal was really to, like, I didn't really make up. I, I mean, I would say there are very few ideas in this book that I made up. And probably every idea that I thought I made up, I really just stole from somebody, but I'm too ignorant to know that I did it. Like, what it, what it is, it's a translation. It, it is. It's like, here's what these things mean, and here's why you care. Like, here's how to use them yeah. in your code. And, and it, it feels to me like we can, like there's a lot to be learned and we should learn it. Like we can write better code in an easier way that where we can produce apps that make us happier. And, you know, those, those guys like Martin Fowler, Kent Beck, you know, Bob Martin, that, there's a whole gang of people that ha, are part of it, this huge history, uh, Ward Cunningham, that, that have information. If we could only understand everything they were saying, we could really improve our, the way we write apps. <laughs> you, know, Sandy, you said in the introduction of your book uh, that uh, design is a fine task for a novice to work at. And I thought that was a real testament to like what you were just saying, that this is for everybody. You know, yeah. this isn't for mm-hmm. experts sitting around having their philosophical debates. You know, this is something we can all do. I mean, I think of design, you know, my definition of design is how your code is arranged. And and if you define design that way, then everybody who types a line of code is doing design. And, and, and if they're not thinking about it, then it, it's probably just poor design. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, <coughs> that's an interesting segue into the de- the debate in our community right now about design, right? Like some people would say they're not thinking of design and that you shouldn't think of design. I mean, what I would say is like, like here's what object-oriented design does. It 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 understands that for any problem, there's an infinite number of well, not infinite, but there's a bunch of different ways to arrange code to solve most problems. And if you understand design, if you understand all these things that object-oriented design brings to the table, then you can predict the consequences of different code arrangements. So you can say, oh, I could use inheritance, and that will have this cost and this benefit, or I could use composition. And that will have this opposing cost and benefit. And in the situation, given what I know about my app and what I want to do, I'm going to choose one or the other with some feeling that I get what the consequence is going to be. Mm-hmm. If you don't know those things, you can just write you just write code and you have no idea what con- – you're making a choice about consequence, but you don't know what it is. And, and so for me, understanding – understanding what what I'm choosing when I choose how to make a code arrangements gives me like more degrees of freedom about how to write apps that are going to be where I can push on them later and they'll change in the way I need them to. One of my favorite ways of explaining as I'm teaching uh, youngsters code, youngsters, is that (laughs) intuition, intuition is 
is what happens when you've forgotten seven ways to solve a problem. And so you get faced with this problem and you're like, eh. And, and, and what you mean by eh is I'm thinking about some trade-offs and, and they feel yucky. And, I, you know, and you haven't hit on one that's perfect. And there isn't one that's perfect. They all have trade-offs. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, so, so as Master Suzuki said, in the beginner's mind, there are many yes. possibilities. In the experts, there are few. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. The, it, and, and, and both sides of that equation, there's a front and a back. So Yeah. Lest, lest people figure out how accurately they are in thinking that I am arrogant, um, I, I feel like George Carlin, and I'm pointing this out because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss the ball to Sandy here in a minute because you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times, but one of my, my goals for 12, 2012 and especially for 2013 is to step back and say, what can I do that's new? And what I love about Pooter is that as I read through it, I kept putting the book down and going, holy crap, that just blows my mind. And um, it's George Carlin, when he he wrote Napalm and Silly Putty, the preface said, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years and I just barely think I've figured it out. And your book has really made me realize that wow, I feel like I've just barely figured this out. And then I read your book and I'm like, okay, no, got to keep working on it. Um, I mentioned that because in the pre-call, you said that you had the same experience, which which terrifies me because if you haven't figured it out, I'm screwed. Uh, okay, well, maybe you are screwed. I, ca- I can't okay. really speak to that. <laughs> fair point, fair point. We can this. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I think I'm like everyone, right? Like I got, I believed that I knew something, and then I started trying to explain it to other people. And a couple things happen when you write a book, right? It's worse. It's worse even than a blog post because, like in a book, in this book, I felt an obligation to give, uh, especially novices, explicit direction about how to behave. I felt like I had to tell them, "Go do this." do it this way. I had to give them rules like early on the Dreyfus scale. And so that's a horrifying thought. Like you want to paint a big target on your head, like write a book and have and publish it and tell people how to write, how to design object oriented code. Right? Like, like this is insane. So, so I had that real tension the whole time about like, well, I wanted to hedge is what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book where nobody could complain that I'd told people the wrong things. That's what I wanted to do, right? That so I a book with no trade-offs? A book with, well, a book that said, well, this or that or this or that or this or that. A, a yeah. book where nobody, could, it, oh, it was all personal. It was the personal fear thing, right? Yeah. Like what I wanted to do was write a book that no one could complain about what I'd said on the internet. Where no one could take issue with me where I would have to defend myself. I didn't, how does, well, it, I want, how does it feel to have succeeded? <laughs> I wanted to write a book where I could never, I would never have the possibility of being wrong. That's awesome. Oh, I want to address that a little bit because I highlighted a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I drove the people on Twitter crazy because I was tweeting it when I highlighted it. But mm-hmm. you, you have a couple of quotes in here that basically outline, hey, look, you know, um, there's risk here and there are trade-offs and um, one of the one of my favorite ones. I just want to read it here. Is that uh, it says practical design does not anticipate what will happen in, to your application. It merely accepts that something will, and that in the present you cannot know what. It doesn't guess the future. It preserves your options for accommodating the future. And so what that says to me is you don't always have enough information. You may never have enough information. But you you will never have less information than you have now. 
So make the design decisions that you feel like you have to and to further rest until you don't have to anymore. And so, you know, it was basically, you know, here are some rules, but use your use your best judgment because you're going to get more information that's going to inform you better later. And so that that kind of opens things up to here are the rules. But if you have information that says that you have to break them, then break them. Yeah. And you, and you can imagine that was not the first thing I wrote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's true. Like I felt it's this tension. I felt the need to give people who were not yet capable of making their own decisions very clear guidance about how to behave. Mm-hmm. But I wanted I wanted to really avoid that trap. Like like some people do have this idea about design. Like like design has a bad rep, right? There are people who curse and spit when they say object oriented design. And, and, and I'm not one of those people, clearly. Like, I really believe that design has a lot. Design will help us all. But it's a certain kind of design. It's design defined a certain way. And so what I wanted to tell people is like, what, uh, the point I wanted to make really was that there's a bunch of trade-offs and there's a point in your career where you get enough experience to make your, to make good decisions about the trade-offs. Like, only you know. Only you know your app. Only you know what, where uh, the most likely points of change are. But for people who don't have enough experience to make those decisions, like we got to give them rules and we have to give them rules that they won't hang themselves with, right? That they won't cargo cult. And so that challenge, the tension between ta- tell- telling people like behave this way until you hate this rule. <laughs> Like, like, I, that's I, awesome. I think you said that in the book. Yeah, as soon as you can make a cogent argument to me about why you should break the rule, you are welcome to break it. Like, that's how you know that you're you have enough experience where you can make your own decisions. But until then, until you can tell me why you shouldn't have an adder reader for every variable, I don't want to look. At, okay, here I'm going to have a little rant. Like, I don't want to look at any code where you're saying at something in your code. Like, don't access that data item. Don't treat it like data. Send a message. And and so I have a whole bunch of blanket prescriptions that I would give newbies. It's like, always do this. Never do this. But I'm keenly aware that I break all those rules myself. And I fully expect people to to grow up and break them too. Yeah, that's a it's, really, it, that's a it, really it, excellent point. It, and, and if you cook... You, you got to follow the recipe until you get to the point where you know when you can make substitutions. There it is. Yes. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Just, just try baking. <laughs> you know, well, well, just, and here's the thing. Yeah, the, way and, and, get, the, the way we get great new recipes is someone breaks the rules. They make up new ones. The, and, yeah, you know, but I, at the same time, they do that because they, they've done something similar over and over and over and over and over again. And so they know what the trade-offs are. Going back to the, what the topic we're talking about, they know what the trade-offs are of substituting this for that or adding this in with everything else. Yeah, the recipes that are made up by novices, we never hear about them because they don't win. I'm going to try and make this anecdote really short. Uh, I, I was just talking to someone about this recently that um, a mathematician was studying knots you know, he, you know, you know, in the field of topology. And his wife was an avid knitter. And mm. he's like, oh, I want to I see if I can model knitting in math and learn anything from it. So she shows him how knitting works. And he writes down some mathematical descriptions of knitting. And then he goes away for a few hours and plays around with it. And he comes back and says, look, I've invented a new way of knitting. I just transformed some of these equations and I have a new form of knitting. And he sits down and explains it to her. And she says, oh, we call that purling. 
which it, which for, anyone, yeah, which for anyone who knows knitting is purling is knitting from the other side of the cloth. Mm-hmm. And, and so his level of sophistication was completely a, a different level from her level of experience, practical, yeah. uh, you know, knowledge. And yeah, so I, you know, my, my point with this anecdote was that unless you have a good grounding in the accepted fundamentals of design and what, you know, what all the pieces are like, oh, well, you know, I have a public interface. I have an inheritance interface. I have, you know, all these pieces of it. When you get to the point where you have to innovate, where you have to break the rules, you may not even know if you're breaking the rules or you're following a different rule. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's so. I mean, the, the powerful, the, to me, the most powerful thing about that is given something a name. Because once we know the name, once I know it's purling, then we can have a conversation. And once we all agree about what purling is, and and so part of what I wanted to do in Pooter was like take all those scary names and make them normal. Like, I don't tell you what polymorphism is until after I show you. And then I'm like, yeah, okay, there's a big long word for this, but you can, you know, I mean, I don't talk about aggregation until after I show you, you know, I don't talk about composition because it's like, it's, it's like we're all doing it. Most programmers, even novices, are doing some form of most of these things, but they don't know the names and they don't know enough about refactoring to do the transitions between them. Right. right. Yeah, and, yeah. And what's the best the form? The really of cool it? thing about that was the really cool thing about that too was that it's kind of an experiment with the reader. You know, I mean, you know where you're going, but the reader, it's like, well, what if what if we rearrange it this way? And then and then, like you said, you give it a name, but but for us, it's a discovery process. You know. For you, it's a guided tour. That's what you're giving us. But for us, it's this process of, well, what if we do it this way? Oh, oh, I see. It, it feels to me like there's a there's room, and I, I don't know what the medium is, the media is for this, but that discovery process, like like there's there's such a need for a way that people can go um, put their hands in an experimental space and like do the refactorings, like yeah, refactor, I, right? It's so, like so, I don't quite. Go, you go. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 Sandy, one of the things that that I kept wanting to see in this book. Now, so, so this book is um, like, like we said, it has a very conversational style, which um, I think makes it very readable. And then, and then you have these summaries at the end of each chapter that says, "Oh, great, you know, here's all the things I showed you." But the the throughout all the chapters, there's all these like really practical prescriptive descriptions. Uh, or prescriptions for for how to do things really effectively, and I just want a cheat sheet for the book. You know, that, it's it's funny. Different people have been have come down on both sides of that issue, and since, of course, mm-hmm. it was easy easier not to do it than to do it, I right. let that vote win. But yours is not <laughs> yours is not the first voice that right. should happen somewhere. And and, gonna- and that and then what I want to see is I want to see you and Avdi. Sit down and prepare a screen. Yeah, uh, there's. Let's see. There's nine chapters in the book. There's eight chapters plus testing. It's like I just want to see a screencast series of just like showing this stuff in action. I I am in agreement that uh, like <laughs> like it's a well, well. First of all, anything that I got to work with Avdion would be oh so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a win. But but it's clear to me. It confuses me a little bit that people do seem to want like talks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, instead of reading the content, because to me the reading is so much faster than the watching, mm-hmm. but it's it's clear that there's there's some way in which our brains are arranged so that listening to someone talk and ha- seeing them draw the pictures some has powerful meaning. And yeah, that, I mean, 
Go. Well, yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about that at Ruby D Camp, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah. we had that that really well attended session on drawing pictures about code, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of people, I think, really got a lot from from the different ways people have come up with for for visualizing code or visualizing design. And you know, there's a story I like to tell from from when I was watching you present your talk uh, at Gogoruko, you know, where you. I forget now the the title of the section that you were going through, but it's it's a sort of a quick fire section of uh, going through a, a basically transitions in a diagram, um, and I, I can't remember for the life of me now. It was a picture of that I'd done a composition. I'd ripped out some. Yeah. Out an oh yeah, you were basically composition. yeah. Yeah, demonstrating composition in a visual form, and and as you were going through it, I actually heard somebody like you know behind me or next to me say, "Whoa." <laughs> You know, it, it has these these visual these visual uh, representations. They have a very they they have a, a strong um, you know learning component for a lot of people, and uh, they really stick with you. and And that's one of the things that I kind of wish that I could do more in the Ruby Tapas videos is visual stuff like that. Number one, I'm not I don't really have much of a gift for it. Number two, I generally don't have time. Um, because I, I run such a, a quick schedule on those, they don't usually have time to add a lot of extra stuff. Um, but even there, I've, I've noticed that like it's interesting in a visual medium how much sort of sideband information you can sometimes add. Well, especially after that talk, like so, Avdi and I were both at Ruby D Camp in the spring, and we talked. We had this session he was referring to. We we attended this session on visualizations, and it really was it was fascinating to look at to see the different ways in which people visualize code. And I'm not really talking about like UML class diagrams here. I'm mostly talking about uh, the transformations of one design to another. So it would be a refactoring, say, from inheritance to composition or refactoring into composition. And it, it feels to me like that has, like there's something powerful there. If, if we could figure out how to do images, moving pictures to teach people, how to write code, then it reaches a whole part of their brain that the words don't reach. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm giving a talk at, uh, Bo, at Baruco in Barcelona in the fall, and it's far enough away that I have time to think about maybe putting a whole talk together about visualizations, about doing mm. re- refactorings based on visualizations. Who knows how it's going to turn out? I don't really have any idea where I'm going with it, but... but like for me, object-oriented programming is like I have this vi- mental image of the app, the app in memory of the objects and the messages passing between them as it runs. And it, it feels like if we could draw that picture, that if you, if you could do an animation of the message of your objects in memory coming and going and the messages passing between them, that you could play it like a movie and you would be able to look at it and tell where the design was wrong. But have you considered uh, doing flip books? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't. I, I don't know. How, what I know is I don't know how to do this. But what I do know is that if I had a chart of numbers and I made a graph out of it, I can look at the graph and know instantly what's true. And I right. cannot parse the numbers. Mm-hmm. And I want to make – if we had a way to do that for applications – you would be able to see, oh, there's too many messages, too many objects, or there's a bottleneck here, where it's very hard to look at the code on the, the source code on disk and tell that, which is what we do now. We look at the source code on disk, and we build up these models in our brains about what's true. 
You know, and if, I, I think you're really onto something there and just listening to you talk that even in a book, right, you show an example and then you say, and so what I need to do is I change that code to this. And then you show another example. And mm-hmm. even though we say we're changing that code, I mean, that's not what happens in the book, right? There's that chunk of code and then there's the other chunk of code. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's mm-hmm. kind of a, a disconnect in our brain. And Avdi was a little down on uh, Ruby Tapas earlier, but one of my opinions is that it's so powerful because I actually do sit there on video and watch him change that code yeah. from the one thing into the other thing. And I actually wish Katrina was here right now because she'll explain this much better than I would, but she talks about the shape of code, mm-hmm. that, that we recognize a lot of things by shape, you know, like we see that and we know, oh, that's wrong for some instinctual reason that we can see that shape, that bulky method, for example, and we know that that's bad, right? And and we have that instinctual reaction to the shape. So we're literally watching Avdi in, in the Ruby Tapas videos mold the shape, right? It's almost like he's messing with Play-Doh and he's reshaping the code while we watch, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I recognize that, like you're saying, there's probably even better ways to show something like that than, you know, just a straight screencast or something. But it is a very interesting topic. I'm I'm waiting on someone to take it and run with it who can write the code. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like run the prof run your test, run the profiler, take that data and draw me this animation. I have got a question that that's maybe changing the focus a little bit. Um I've already already spent 2 hours interviewing you about your book. So uh-huh. I don't want to ask you any any more questions about the book. Um just if, drill if people- just sweat. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, um, if you get the, uh, the like the deluxe edition, the sponsor edition of Objects on Rails, you get a that that interview get, comes along with it. Just send uh, her the right message, Abdi, and she'll give you the right response. <laughs> um, what I'm curious about is um, sort of beyond beyond Pooter. Um, now, um, you know, since we talked, you've been out and about quite a bit. You've talked to many, many people at conferences. Um, you've done, you know, a little bit of, you know, I think going into um, companies and, and talking to them. What are the things that you feel like aren't in the book that you'd like to talk about now that, pe- you know, people are asking you about and having trouble with? Uh, well, the interesting thing is that, well, okay, th- it will come as no surprise that people want me to give them advice about their Rails apps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> they want to know how to deal with uh, where you put logic if it doesn't go in your fat model. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to know how to deal with presenters, right? So, so there's a, so there's that, right? But there's also what I find is that it's it's like the book is fits in the middle, and there's stuff on the left of it and on the right of it. Uh, on the right of it is like how do you apply these techniques to a Rails app, and what are the best practices that the Rails community can offer you? And there's hu- you know there's a huge amount of dispute in the Rails community right now. Actually, there's uncertainty and there's dispute. All right, and I'll divide those into two different categories. The before, so maybe that's on the right side of the book. On the left side of the book is it turns out that people need what I see when I go out. Like I okay, I'm in terror, right? Some business invites me to go there. They want me to show up. And look at their code. And when that happens, I walk into an office full of people and a bunch of people say, the conversation goes like this. They say, well, we have this app. It's a terrible mess. It's got a hundred classes in it. They're all interleaved. Our tests run for forever. And I'm going to open up my text editor. I'm going to show you this phone. I'm going to point my finger at this method and ask you to tell me how to fix it. 
right? So there's this, <laughs> there's this enormous amount of complexity that we build over a number of years. And I want you to look at this bit of code and tell me how to improve it. Like, that's what happens to me. And when Sandy I, fixes it in 20 minutes and they live well, happily ever after. Well, that not quite. I mean, what I found, okay. Okay, you can imagine that's a terrifying thought that one is going to be in that situation. But what I've been finding is that all the problems are simple and that they're all the same. And and also that the the people in that situation want me to give them very specific, definite rules about how to write code. And I finally caved and started giving them to them. I made up rules for them. And, and so it turns out that people have methods that are too big. They have classes that are too big. They pass too many parameters. They use if statements and case statements. And if you can, and, and all of those problems really are a symptom of one thing. And the solution is the same solution. Break it down into smaller bits. And so what I've been finding out in the world is that people's, the bits are too big and that people should make smaller bits. And that solves huge amounts of problems. And if you know any of the object-oriented techniques about making things smaller, like, if you know what bits you're looking for, if you're looking for composition, or you're looking for inheritance, then you just have a leg up because you can talk to your friends about it. Um, so, so one of the things I'm seeing is that they want, so on the, on the right-hand side, they want me to fix their Rails app. But on the left-hand side, what they really, what everyone needs to do is go home and write smaller things. So um, you brought up Rails, and I, ha I have to read this out of the book, and, and then you can respond. I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. It says, and I quote, Avoid writing frameworks that require users of your code to subclass your objects in order to gain your behavior. <laughs> yeah, How do don't you feel do that. about Rails? I, How do you feel know, about Rails? I love Rails. I love Rails. And here's why I love Rails, right? I can write a web app, even if I don't know much. I can write a web app if I don't know OOP. I, like, I, that cracked the door open to let people produce products, to get features done, to, to make web apps. And we are in that business. We're in the business of producing features for our customers. And so I, there, I, would, I have nothing bad to say about Rails. I use it. I like it. I'm grateful for the effort that people have put into it over the years. However, there, and, and here's, okay, it is the perfect solution for the problem it solves. Damn near. Very nearly perfect for the problem it solves. However, many of us have a slightly different problem. And so now we're no, going to dive. No, all of us have a slightly different problem because <laughs> Rails is the base camp problem and there's only one base camp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, like the crud problem. I mean, I would, I would argue that if you have the, the problem of I have a database that I want to put a web interface around that and it's straightforward. I have, you know, this direct mapping between a screen that the user sees and a table in the database and a row in the table in the database. Like it, it's perfect for that. And, and at that point, I mean, now we're going to have to get into some slightly more fuzzy language, right? Like, like if you want to, like if you think of the controller as, as the request coming in from the user as one side of your app. And it, that's that's on your left hand, right? And if you put your right hand out and you say the data, the data where it goes in the database is on my right hand. And if, and if there's an, if there's a direct mapping between the data that's going on in your database and the request that's coming in the controller, you can put your hands right together and, and that works and it's fine. And that's what Rails does. It wires them right together. However, if any time that you have an impedance mismatch between those things, 
then there's some, you move your hands apart and there's some space in the middle. And this, this goes to hexagonal architecture, right? If you take, if there's a body of things that should fit between your hands and you put them in your left hand in the controller or in your right hand in the persistence layer, what you've done is you've made it hard to reuse that logic, which is shouldn't really be tied to either one of those things. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the base camp problem is a problem where the hands are pretty close together. And it's really easy to write a Rails app to solve that problem. And it's perfect for doing that. I, I mean, I believe that, okay, I would tell you that many, many people are in significant pain because of their Rails apps right now, because those are the people who are talking to me. And, and they're in pain, they're in a pain that I believe object-oriented design can solve. And it's not enough, like, okay, let me back up again. Because I, 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 Let me just say this. I have no interest in the fight, the design fight. I was going to say, Sandy, you are, giving, you are picking a lousy fight here. This I, is... Not, I, I am, when I take the Myers-Briggs test, I'm a flat line right down the center. <laughs> Every time I take it. And, 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 and it's, I mean, it's, it is a true thing, right? Like, I, from, and let's just mention the elephant in the room, right? From David DHH's perspective, he is exactly right. And when I heard him on the rogues, I agreed with 99.9% of what he said. Like, like for that problem, you don't need to do much other than pour your logic into Rails. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you should do no more. It's a waste of time and money to do more if that's the problem you have. However, what I do, what I do object to, the only thing I really object to is that I see a lot of people who have a different problem and it does not help them to say, don't look at design. There are people who are in pain that design can help and they should be allowed, they should, they should not be dissuaded from learning the techniques that might improve their lives just because those techniques don't necessarily apply to every Rails app. Um, the, and the other thing I would argue is that if you looked at Basecamp, I'll bet you would say, I'll bet any anybody who knew object-oriented design would look at Basecamp and say the code was well-designed. I'll bet, I'll, bet, I'll bet the design is good enough so that people would like it. And, and so, okay, I'm someone, I'm, I'm like a bad academic. And so I can tell you that I'm, I once thought I made up the law of Demeter. I did. I thought I made it up. I, I was having a rant about it and someone told me like the name of it. And I was like, really? That's awesome. It, it has ignorance an of the law is no excuse. I thought I made up the null object. <laughs> I thought I made up the null object pattern. Actually, I did make it up. I, one day I was working on something. I was like, oh, you know, I just need an object that'll just answer everything as if it's okay. Yeah, we, then, we call that purling. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I believe that a lot of people who say, oh, but design is a bad idea. I mean, it's not that they're not good programmers. It's, it's just that they figured this stuff out themselves and they're already doing it. Right. And so, right. And so, or why reinvent the wheel? Those particular so, pains. So, if you're, if if so, if it doesn't hurt, just keep on doing it. Yeah. So, Sandy, the um. Okay. So, so first off, Chuck, this is going to be a long episode. We're not doing picks soon. Just, just get over it. I'm skipping my pick as well. <laughs> yeah. So, the um, the so so Sandy, the the thing that um people who have used more than a couple frameworks over the years, uh, I I think we've all had a similar experience that when you when you're building an application using a, a framework that the first I don't know call it a year or or call it a month I don't know but the the first era the framework is awesome and it helps you get stuff done and it gives you a huge leg up and you are out the gate right away and you get all this 
cool stuff going on. And it's, it's an incredible force multiplier for your productivity. Because this, the problems that you all have to solve at the beginning of your application are pretty similar kinds of problems. And then when you get into the middle era of your application, or the second <laughs> era, then, um, the, then the framework, it, it's sort of ambivalent. It's still got this structure and it's influencing the shape of your application, but it's not really providing as much leverage for productivity as it was in the first era. And then in the third era, the framework is actually interfering with you being productive and creating new value in your application. And then many applications, there's this fourth era where they've uh, sort of like built another framework on top of the framework to help them move forward. I mean, it, it, does that sound accurate to you? It Well, it, in terms of the... Yes. Well, the short answer is yes, right? Okay. Okay. Like, so. like Rails 1, Rails 1 in 2006... And it's 2013. And I, I've been alive long enough so that my, I have databases that are now on their third different framework wrapping around them, right? They had Smalltalk around them. They had some Java over them. Now they have Ruby over them. Now I'm looking at, I'm wondering about Go. I'm wondering about functional languages. I'm wondering about, you know, other things I can do in Ruby. It's like the framework. And, and so in order to, in order for my data to live, into the next generation of technologies, what I want to do is have most of my business logic not be wrapped up in the framework. And, and I think it, that, you know, in some ways that parallels what you just said, Josh, where at first, like, all I needed to do is put up a web app, but that as, as the business logic became a bigger and bigger part of the app, it was important for me to preserve my investment in that business logic by having it be independent of the framework. And I, I'm... I love, like I said, I love Rails. I use it every day. Well, I don't really use it every day, but I use it a lot. And, but I don't want to be stuck. Like Rails isn't the only, you know, framework out there. And it, and it, I don't think, I mean, is it like, if you, if you look ahead in 20 years, are we all going to be doing Rails? Oh, I hope not. I'm going to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> Rails version 50. And yeah, and I mean, in some ways, we're living in a world where the Rails community is not like when the Rails community was uh, startups that came and went as the VC capital ran out. Then you're you're that like those are not my peeps, right? My peeps are the people who write big apps or or even small apps where the data is what has value. And what we're trying to do is you know put a face on that data so users can interact with it. And so in that sense, the framework, frameworks come and go, and my goal is to have the framework give me the most value for the least trouble. And, and it's, it's important to me that frameworks, that I be able to write code that I can keep even when the framework is gone. And that's not a perspective that you have on day one of your first job at a startup. That's a really <laughs> yeah. great uh, answer. And you probably don't know this, but you're, you're playing heavily into this kind of Perma debate that we have going on on the uh, Parlay mailing list, where DHH is explaining a lot of his ideas to us, and and some other people, uh, Corey Haynes, Josh Avdi, myself in particular, are providing some counterpoints. Um, so so let me you said about that was a great way of saying we're all fighting with DHH. <laughs> I, I can't tell if we're winning, but I mean, I don't think we're. Completely fighting. No, we're not. No, I, 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 it's actually a really excellent conversation. It is it where DHH is making a lot of fantastic points, and and while some of us believe he's wrong on some of those, 
you know, it's, it's very well done and, and, uh, yeah, it's a great discussion. And I, I would love to bring all of it here, but I can't. But let's do this one part because it, it ties into a lot of what Sandy says. Um, in that thread, uh, we've, we've had a lot of talking about things like object oriented design, uh, things like dependency injection or, you know, uh, hiding your instance variables behind methods or things like that versus, the counterpoint of Yagni, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, doing this up front and, and I come down on the side where I do, you know, I, I don't take Yagni to be straight in the center. Like, you know, it could be this or it could be this. So I'll pick the perfect halfway point and do that. That's mm -hmm. not what I do. I go, it could be this or it could be this. So I'll err just a little bit on the side of design, right? Like, for example, I usually inject a dependency pretty much just right when I put it in, you know? And my reasoning for that is that I found it makes the code more flexible in the future, and thus I, those objects tend to get used more. Whereas <laughs> if I don't do that, then what I find is that I don't use those objects more because they're not as flexible, right? So it, it basically becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. Anyways, I, I showed something like that to DHH in the thread, and my example was probably pretty bad, but uh, he, he tore it down as classic Yagni. You know, you've added a few lines for a problem you don't have now, uh, etc. So I, I was wondering, Sandy, where do you fall on that divide? Do you literally not, you know, start introducing some design until you felt a bit of pain there, or do you err a little bit on that side? It would be good to hear your thoughts on that. For simple coding techniques, there are some that I pretty much follow all the time. And I, I break these now and then, but my pattern, like, like there are some things where I think, where, there are some decisions where the cost is the same, um, whether you do it way A or way B. And, and for that, I'm going to say instance variables. Like it is, to me, the cost of adding the adder reader and sending the message to get that object versus the cost of referring to the object itself by that, you know, referring to the variable. Those are so much, so close to being a wash that I never refer to the instance variable, that I always make a, they always send the method. And so lots of these decisions that people say, Yagni, I'll be like, well, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter in the present, I do the thing that leaves me the most moving room later the most flexibility later. And along those lines, so one is the instance variables. The The dependency injection example is an interesting one because if when I'm forced to give people a rule, what I tell them is never refer to the name of a class inside another class, right? So that, 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 that rule means that you always have to inject every dependency. Now, I'll tell you that I break that rule. I break it. But mostly, I inject dependencies rather than... Um, Getting the getting a new instance of a class in another class, and and I can defend this as saving me money today, and I'll do it. I I can do that by saying, you always have two uses of a class. You have the use your uh, the rest of your app makes of it, and the use that your tests make of it. And I get so many benefits by being able to inject dependencies in my tests so that I can stick some other object in there if I need to stub or mock or make a test double, that I feel like 
um, it's like it's a, it's a, it's the, the good analogy is buying lottery tickets, right? Like I'm buying a lottery ticket every time I inject a dependency, and they don't all pay off. But if I do it all the time, it, it goes back to what you were just saying, James. Like there's enough of the time that I discover uh, that I save enough money in testing, or I discover that I do reuse it or want to inject another kind of object. Like that pays off often enough, so that I feel like I save money today by generally thinking about code in terms of injecting its dependencies. The whole Yagni thing, like I'm a true believer in Yagni and I almost never cause myself a problem with under design. Like when I make a mess, it's very often because I have picked an abstraction too soon. And so I've gotten way more comfortable with leaving messes in my code where I expect to find an abstraction and do a refactoring, but I'm going to wait on like three cases instead of two. Like I'll put a case statement in there and ha that'll have two branches in it because I think I'm going to have a third and I know I'm going to get rid of it, but I don't, I'm waiting on more information. For me, the decision point about whether to reach early for the abstraction or whether to leave the mess and wait to fix it later. It depends on who's going to maintain. Okay, so so, so that's that that's a that's a great um, sort of high level conversation about that. And I and um, I'd like to, if I can, uh, drive that down to one particular issue as an example. Okay. So um, it and that's um, in chapter six. You're talking about inheritance and what you know. What are some good ways for designing that uh, essentially inheritance interface? And, uh, you know, I, I remember many years ago, uh, like, in first encountering the concept of an inheritance interface and that if you're building a superclass that you know people would be making subclasses of, you have to design it with that extensibility in mind. So I, I, I loved what you showed in the chapter there. The, the, thi the thing that, um, that I, got to, I got to the end of, the, of chapter six and I looked at what you had created for the superclass subclass uh, uh, decomposition there and how, how you how you factored that out was that when I looked at the at, at the code at the end of chapter six what you had in the subclass was something that didn't need to be a subclass at all and that you know there were no calls to super in it there were no dependencies on the internal structure of the superclass and I looked at it and I said this is composition this you know this doesn't need to be a superclass or you know sub subclass relationship at all, and, and then you know a chapter or two later you showed oh well you know now we can refactor this code into something that actually is composition, and the 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 thing that I that I saw at the end of chapter six was okay this is actually a really you know good set of guidelines for people who are building inheritance APIs and that's that's great, but the. My, you know, my look at it was maybe it was you know just like a refactoring too far, that that uh, it had it had gone to the point where okay we have our we have our class and it's now just about ready to be turned into a into a composition relationship rather than inheritance and I think that that if when I'm when I'm building things and I'm 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 going with the inheritance as a way of extending things and, and composing things uh, in my code that that I'm okay with tighter coupling. That's sort of what it's about. I'm, I, I don't at all disagree with you. If I'm maintaining the code, I can leave all kinds of messes and wait on more information. Because I know, I, I trust myself to fix them. Like one of the things that I confessed to Avdi when he and I talked about the book was how bad I am at making class methods. How, how much I err 
in, in making class methods. I make class methods all the time, and I know they're wrong, but in the present, I can never figure out, like, how is this going to hurt me? Like, this seems like the easiest, cheapest way to do it right now. So, and, and I've gotten to the point where I'm just, I'll just do it. And I'll know that eventually I'll figure out why I hate myself for doing it and I'll fix it then. Instinct. And, yeah. And it's the same way with inheritance. Like, since I came from a world where uh, I didn't have modules, I didn't have mix-ins. So inheritance was often our only choice. Uh, it, it, well, it was a choice. It wasn't the only choice. Obviously, we could have used composition, but but uh, we use a lot of inheritance in small talk. Oh, yeah. And I think the the refactoring of that example in the book all the way to the point where you can easily change it to composition, that I have that bias because I have used inheritance too much and been great and had to push it all the way to there to get out of it, right? And so if you... If you're maintaining your own code or, or senior people are maintaining your code, your obligations about what to leave change and leaving things so that people who come behind you can do the right thing. Like, like that's the last question I ask about code. When I, like I write it, I do the red green refactor, I work on it, I get to whether I'm, to where I'm going to check it in, I run a diff. And I look at all the methods I added and all the names of and all the parts and I think, what will this look like? And I, I run the tests and I read what the, what the tests say, what the story it tells. And I say, what does this look like to someone who knows nothing about the code? And, and I have that bias because I write a lot of code that other people maintain, right? And so the last thing I do is go fix the names and fix the it statements in the tests and fix the, break the methods up to make them a little more, uh, intention revealing. And, and, so if you, but if it's my code, I'm just like, yeah, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> and, and so everybody, like we can use design, like I'm a designer and you would take my badge away. You would take my card away if you could see some of the code I write. A and that's okay, right? Because we're just trying to save money. I mean, we're trying to get code out the door. Uh, like the point behind learning these techniques is not to use them all the time, but to understand how to use them when you need to and how to get to them once you have a mess. Because most of the code we write involves, most of the design problems we have are, are problems of refactoring, not initial problems. It's rare that we do, like we're not doing perfect design for the whole app on day one. We don't know enough. What we do is we write a bunch of code, we throw it out the door, and then we get more information and we have to get from here to Drop there. The uh, so the, the problem is getting from here to there, right? You write some code, you threw it out the door, it's good enough, and then change happens and then you have to decide how to do it. And so, so now I need two things. I need to understand what change I want to make in the code, and I need to have enough refactoring skills to get from here to there. And so, you know, those two things, like deciding where to stop, really depends on who's going to maintain the code. Yeah. So I have another question. I'm going to completely change the topic. But uh, when I was reading the book, I, I read through probably the first eight chapters and I was like, okay, I really like these approaches. I've, I've really learned a lot about these, but there was something that I wasn't quite comfortable with about them. And what it turned out to be was all the stuff in chapter nine, which was, okay, well, I have all, I've, I've designed all these interfaces so, so that they accept these messages in these ways, but I didn't have a, a great way of of proving that they did what they were supposed to do. And so chapter nine, which is uh, honestly the longest chapter in the book, but it was, for me, it was the, the biggest aha. And it was just one thing after another, because it was, it was, here's how you approach this to basically make your tests as flexible as your code so that it can actually prove that your code does what it's supposed to do without repeating itself and without being too verbose. 
And I, I really, really appreciated that just for the sense that it made me comfortable in implementing the rest of the stuff that you put into the book. Isn't testing cool? Heck yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. So I, I didn't think I had anything to write about testing. And then I sat down and tried to figure out what I would tell people to test. And I realized, oh, it's, there's like three simple rules, right? Like test, you know, make assertions about state for incoming messages and make assertions that you send outgoing messages and ignore private methods, right? I mean, the rules are really simple, but it turns out they're incredibly powerful. And, and being able to, and, and also test roles, right? Make tests to prove right. your role, play their role. And those four things together make everything easy. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I push back on something really quick on that? And that is that a lot of times um, I'll compose methods um, out of private methods. And most of the time you're right that, it you know, you test your public method, you test what comes in and goes out, and that's fine. But sometimes um, I, I've kind of codified a complex um, sequence of things that have to happen into a method on a class. And... A lot of that winds up in in, in private methods, I mean, just so that I can say, look, this is this is the interface you want to use, and the rest of this stuff just makes it so that I can read what I put into my public method. I can't get to those private methods directly, and so it, it usually turns into a battery of uh, a whole bunch of tests to manage the com the complex uh, processes there. Mm -hmm. Is is, is that I is that an indication that I have a problem, yes. or is is that something that I, I may have to reach in and test my privates. It, no, uh, it is it is a common problem actually, and I have a pick for this episode that's exactly about that. So how about we save it for there? Ooh, yeah. So does that mean I shouldn't express an no, opinion? No, you you can, but express, uh, please. I'll, I'll yeah. my pick. So here's what I would tell you: don't don't test private methods unless you really need to, and in which case, test them as much as you want. I, I have code. So, so here's what happens, right? I love you, Sandy. I love you so much. <laughs> I mean, here's the deal. Like, like, so you have private methods, and they're nasty, gnarly, complicated, unstable things. And if you just test the edges, if you just follow the rules I gave you and test the boundaries of your interface, if you, if you screw up a private method, then it's really hard to fix it because the error message is a long way from the thing that failed. Uh-huh. And so, writing tests of private method t means that you're writing a test that tightly couples you to something that's unstable. And there's a cost and a benefit to that. If you break it, if, if, the, if, if it ought to work and you break it accidentally, your test will tell you, will, they will drive you very close to where the problem is and make it easy to fix. However, if you decide on a different, if you decide to change that unstable private implementation to something else, then you have to throw your test away and write a new one. And, and so it may be that it's worth it's worth it to you to test a private method because you know I I tend to when I'm writing a new class I often have tests for all the private methods in it and then as things settle down and I feel like the private implementation maybe is more steady at that point either I take the test of private method out or I put a little note in there that says if these break delete them. Mm. You 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 uttered a, a heresy that just just lit me up so happily. Uh, you did you did a lunch and learn at Heroku and you talked about testing, and you talked about testing private methods and you you got through the you know if it's hard go ahead and test it so that you can work your way through it, and then you said something that made my just made my jaw hit my chest. You said, and then once it's working, delete the test. Yeah, you don't need it. It's just in your way. Mm -hmm. Well, it's. It's in the way of anybody who comes after. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. One of the uh, Destroy All Software episodes recently was really good about that. 
he gets a bug report. And it's something like, you know, when I go to this link, I get an exception. And he, he said, all right, let's debug this using tests. And so he actually starts from a high level, you know, driving the application kind of test, and he figures out what the scenario is to hit that URL and get it to throw this exception. So then, using nothing but the stack trace, he goes down one level further and basically tries to write that test in just a controller level test, right? Directly hitting the action. Triggers it again, then again using nothing but the stack trace, he goes down to the model layer, right? And figures out what it is there. And it's a really cool bit of programming of, uh, he, he's not opening the code. He's not looking for that bug. He's just writing these tests. So what he ends up with is like this layer cake of tests that led him to the bug. And then when he fixes it, obviously he verifies that the whole layer cake works now. But then he also talks about how, and now we can probably remove a bunch of these tests because they were just for me, you know. Yeah, cool. Yeah, or leave a minute if they add add value because you didn't right. have coverage around that one way or the other. But but the problem is he covered it at three different layers. Right. right? Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about how there might be some value to leading them if it's like a user facing feature that that is costing you money when it breaks or something like that. But but in most cases, what he basically did is he he introduced redundancy in the test that didn't really make sense, right? He could at least cut off two of the layers and leave the other one. Yeah, yeah. only one layer has real value. Right. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the one thing that I got to say about the, about, cha- well, actually, I have two things to say about Chapter 9. I mean, one, Chapter 9 was awesome. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, I loved the, the, like, here's the different ways that you test this stuff. And I'm pretty sure that I've done all of those things multiple times in applications, but, uh, never like quite that methodically. So I, I, I think chapter nine is going to become pretty dog-eared as, as I work on my next app. The, but the thing about it is that I mean I, I agree that this is the right way to write um, a large a large body of tests, and that this is going to give you much more maintainable tests as you get a big a big test suite. The th- the thing that um, that I, I have a little bit of reservation about is like you said, design is hard and this is, you know, while this is like the right way to do things that, you know, just like program code can have bugs, test code can have bugs and can have design errors. And that is, you didn't, so like the, the thing that feels like is missing is the safety net that, you know, when I do rails applications, I'll do like acceptance and integration tests so that I have a happy path through my application just to make sure that everything is stitched together the right way. And the, the testing approach that you talk about in chapter nine, I think it, it, it works. And I try, I try, I tried to like poke at it. And even though I was like, it was sort of like late at night when I was reading, I, I tried to find holes in the testing approach, but it really does seem like you have like all the pieces hooked together. What, what it doesn't have is like, uh, some allowance for people are going to get this wrong sometimes and what's the safety net that they should be doing to make sure that they don't screw up their tests in a way that screws up everything else. It's completely missing integration tests. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what's missing, right? End-to-end testing. Cause it really, yeah. I mean, what that chapter is, is about unit testing. Mm-hmm. And I probably don't ever say that anywhere in the book. I mean, it's like the, it's the curse of the example app, right? Like this is an app that fundamentally has no user interface. 
So it's hard to know where the edge is to test it. Like there's there are very few use cases that go all the way through. So I so in, the short answer is I totally agree. Like this is not enough, but I, I tend to write unit tests and integration tests and nothing else, nothing in between. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. makes me put all my code in something that's unit testable, which is a good thing. Right? I can't have helpers. I can't have code and views. Like if I want it to be tested, it has to be in a poro in some kind of object that I can get to in a unit test. A poro? And a plain old, plain old Ru Ruby object. Ruby object. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like if you if you make that rule that says like everything if you're afraid to write code without tests, which I am having you know, once you once you write your first test and you realize how bad your code is, then you you're ruined forever, right? So I, I definitely want to write tests and I want to write test first code, but I don't want to write controller tests. And so I end up in Rails apps. It, that drives me toward trying to put everything in an object that's easily testable. And so when I do that, then I just have these the bottom level tests like are in chapter nine, and then there'll be some wrapper test at the edges of the whole application. And that's where the safety net is. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, so when maybe when you revise the book, yeah. <laughs> Shoot me now. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, I, so, I was actually thinking earlier when I can't remember who asked Sandy, you know, what would they like to include that they didn't? It was Afti. Um, the, uh, uh, what I wanted when, and I actually took a note about this when I got to the end that what I wanted was, um, a lot of your examples, you know, it, we've talked about the conversational style and it's, it's this class moves into this other class or or maybe two classes if you're splitting something out kind of thing. Uh, what I want for a second edition or a follow-up or whatever is some cases where we move up to like the medium level of complexity of object interactions mm -hmm. where you've got like a handful of objects interacting and you're applying these rules to them as the and it, and it feels like the book is a terrible uh, medium for that. Like it does need something like we were talking about before where there's some other some website some interactive thing where people can go and get their you know get up to their elbows in that sink of objects in a way that you can easily manipulate them yeah i don't i don't really know what that is but i i am deeply sympathetic for the fact that it's the next step for learning right so i have a question sandy you mentioned you test units and then you test uh integration mm -hmm. um one uh, I won't say anti-pattern. I will say one effect. When I try to do that, one one result of the trade-off that I end up at is that I end up with these these objects that are well tested, but the interactions between them are not tested to my satisfaction anyway. Um, is that because the are you are you in creating more objects that encapsulate those interactions? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Thank so, you. Open my fridge and turn on the light. Okay. I've been wanting to give, okay, so people wanted rules for me, like when I go out and see, you know, strangers and look yeah. at their code, they want rules. And I gave them, so I finally broke down and gave them some rules. Mm -hmm. And and the rules are, this is a big target. This is painting a big target on me to give you these rules. But I, I want to I want to say them to you and see what you guys think about them. Please. Okay, so I ended up giving, this is the bottom line. Your class can be no longer than 100 lines of code. Your methods can be no longer than five lines of code. I wanted four, but I felt like I had to give them five. You can <laughs> you can pass no more than four parameters, and you can't just make it one big hash. Um, 
your controller, when a, when a call comes in a Rails app, when a call comes into your controller, you can only instantiate one object to do whatever it is that needs to be done. Oh, and I, that like, your, I love it. <laughs> and that your view can only know about one instance variable. So those are the rules I gave them. I told them they could break right. them, right? They could break them, but... Yeah, so, but then everything anyway. would be too simple. Yeah, so, so, ta- so what do you guys think about those rules? I'm terrified. Who's the audience for those rules? <laughs> you, Josh, you. This was a shop of people who had mid-level experience, but that had created some big, they had a, you know, they had like a controller with many, many lines of code in it with many, many modules and views that had so many instance variables that they, you know, felt like they just had to set every instance variable known to humankind to make them work. Right? I mean, I, I you know, these are people, I would say, everybody, everybody is the audience for that rule, frankly. Like, if you don't know the rule, if you don't know, if, if if you're afraid of making a mess out of your Rails app and you followed these rules, if you could figure out how to follow these rules, I think you would uh, get it, stay out of trouble. So, I one think- thing that really strikes me with these rules is that, for the most part, if you really try, you should be able to follow them. And if you're, if you can't follow them, see, this is the thing with programming rules that I think people don't understand is that when you say, I'm giving you this rule, they think, oh, well, I'm sure I can find an instance that breaks this rule. And the whole point is, yeah, but when you break the rule, you should be able to explain exactly why you need to break the rule. And, and that way you can then, you know, justify what you're doing. But otherwise, you're not forced to think about what you're coding. And that's really what the, the issue is. Is it's, That's a okay, fantastic point. If, I, I if, told if them, you, I agree. I told yeah, them you, they could break the rules if they could talk their pair into agreeing with them. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's good. That good. is that's awesome. why I like Ooh. the term. Like I, I've seen a lot of pushback against rules, you know, let's call them guidelines, um, and stuff like yeah, that. But guidelines and don't and have I any really right. right. I mean you know, as, as, as far as as far as words mean, mean anything, you know, um that's why I like the the term rules because it, it has that that uh, implication that you need to talk somebody into you know, you need to explain to someone um, why it's okay to break. And yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, if you can explain to your pair, um, this is why it makes sense to and break this rule with here. And, and they, they agree with you. Yeah. Or to um, yourself or, or to yourself. But, but, but the thing is, is with, if you're doing it by yourself, because it's hard is not a valid reason for breaking the rule. Right. So, so, so here, here, here's the thing. And it goes all the way back to the title of the book practical object-oriented design. Yep. And the, and the the thing that um I think is the is the hidden magic in this book is that every chapter when you when when Sandy is talking about the the trade-offs that are involved in these things and every at, at one she's upfront about the fact that it's all trade-offs and that it's all about what is the cost of doing the work and what is the benefit that you get out the other side. And you know these rules that you know, Sandy, these rules that you've talked about, I think they're great as as goals. And yes, you should be able to break them when you need to. But the the thing is, they're they're sort of tuned for if I spend the the work, you know, if I do the work to follow this rule, most of the time I'm going to get a benefit from it down the road. Mm-hmm. And yep. that and that you really and and that when you're evaluating breaking the rule, the I think the right mindset for that is. How much is it going to cost me to follow the rule versus mm-hmm. how much it's it, going to save? Yeah. Yeah. What is it about what is, the money? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and and when you, when we're talking about breaking the rules versus not breaking the rules, I mean, we're we're going back to the conversation about whether or not we have enough information. That information doesn't have to come from the user. It doesn't have to come from the product owner. Sometimes it comes from gee, I'm going to break this rule and see what happens. And when it comes around and kicks you in the rear end, mm-hmm. you go, oh, I ha- now have enough information to know that this design decision was the wrong one and I'm going to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and very often it means making breaking into smaller bits, right? Which is what all these rules make you do. Like if you have to break things into small bits, you're going to really try for the bits to have high cohesion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so lots of things naturally fall out of this. And yeah, it's like whatever. They're like they were. These are arbitrary guidelines that I gave people who are really they were desperate for help about how to make decisions in the present where they felt like they didn't have enough information, but they but where they had, the decisions that they had made in the past using the same criteria had turned out very badly, mm-hmm. right? They don't know enough to do the right thing and they understand that there's a better thing and they, and they even, they can explain these patterns, some of them, but they don't know what to do right now. They haven't bridged that gap yet that'll keep them out of trouble in the code they write today. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was my best guess about how to give them some sort of practical guidance. Hey, 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 hey do people in that situation anything is better than nothing. It, it felt like it. And they were, they were uh, you know, who knows how it will work out. I mean, I'll check back in and find out, like, are you following the rules? And, d- you know, are you following them, first of all? And if you are, do they seem like, do they seem more helpful than harmful? I mean, I know that my code looks a lot like that. I mean, what would you guys say? Does your code, look, look, if you evaluated all the code, the most recent Rails app that you wrote based on those rules, would it mostly follow it or would it mostly not follow it? So, Chuck, our client listens to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I know. So I know. <laughs> I'm going to go, no I'm going to go ahead and, I'm going to go ahead and take the bullet for both of us and say, hell no. And, <laughs> and my experience from this, I, I've got this, this simultaneous thought that I've, I've been, has been recurring to me frequently that, and I didn't link them together until just now, which is that, Programmers, I have observed recently especially, have a an incredible ability to tolerate pain and just assume that it's unavoidable, so why try? Yeah. And I listen to these rules, and I'm like, we break all of these rules, and we know that at some point we've broken the rule. You know, some, sometime around 750 lines of code in the class, you start thinking, maybe this class was too big. And maybe. 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 And what I'm realizing is that I break all of these rules regularly I personally at some point I I have rules well I don't have a hard and fast rule at some point I know it's too big but I I swing past your rules without sensing any pain and I I, let let me ask you so so let me ask you a question then why is it that I, I think there's I think we as human beings have a bias the bias is to let it get too big yeah more, far more than to break it up too soon, mm-hmm. right? And, th- and it's kind of like if I'm going somewhere in my car and I could drive past a bunch of intersections, like I usually make the last possible turn to get to the place I'm going. Like I don't turn at the first opportunity. I turn at the last chance.